What's up, Fathom fam? Welcome to our weekly Sunday Sermon Podcast. As Pastor Kyle and Taryn are taking a time of sabbatical away from the campus and preaching to spend some intentional time with family and the Lord and get refreshed, they've been really intentional about setting us as a church body up for a time to continue growing even in their physical absence. We look forward to their return on August 8th, but get excited to be hearing until then from some of our other favorite pastors and leaders in our summer series called One. This is going to be a really special summer series where we'll keep on growing our faith and experiencing freedom in Christ as we receive from many voices the one cohesive message that God has given the church. Don't forget that you can follow us to stay up to date on everything going on at Fathom on Instagram or YouTube, our Facebook page, and our Fathom Family Facebook group, and of course, on the Church Center app. We hope to see you there, but for now, we're going to jump right into the message. Fathom Church family, I want to thank you so much for being here this morning, for tuning in from wherever you are. If you're uh, at home, in your car, at at the beach, if you're with friends and family, or it's just you and I today, I hope that uh, you're blessed by this service and that you were blessed by the worship that we just enjoyed. I want to give a special shout out uh, to Pastor Kyle and Pastor Taryn, and uh, I pray that uh, you guys are are doing great as you're getting ready to come back um, and, and you're feeling refreshed. And uh, from your time in sabbatical, and uh, we're so thankful for you. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to be able to uh, to to talk to uh, your congregation, and and we've just grown to love uh, all of you at Fathom so much. Uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Todd Corpy, and uh, my wife Tara and I are pastors here in the Jacksonville area. In fact, Tara was actually with us last week. And we, we co-taught together about Jesus's feeding of the 5,000 and kind of this blessed, broken, given sort of cadence that we find in that story and that it calls us to live lives of being blessed, broken, and given. So if you haven't already, make sure to hop onto YouTube and to, uh, to check out that message after uh, our time together. But uh, I want to dive into our time because we don't have a ton of time and I don't want to go long uh, in, in an online uh, sort of setting. So, uh, so I want to dive right into what we're talking about. We're going to talk about Luke chapter 15, if you want to head over to there now. But really, this subject, this story has been kind of burning on my heart for the majority of the time that, that we've been in this kind of pandemic season since the, the beginning of last year. And, you know, it goes without saying, and we've probably said it way too much to the point where it's like beating a dead horse, that we live in unprecedented times. You know, people are reimagining what it means to to work and to live your lives and uh, being online and being in person do we work remotely do we go into the office do we you know do this or that and in addition to that we live in very uh, amidst this season it kind of was uh, the 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 tail end of a pressure cooker uh, session that that really blew the lid off of a lot of social tension and unrest in our society. We are in a very polarized time in our culture, and it behooves us as the local church to wrestle with that, not look at okay what's going on and how do we read this into scripture, but instead how do we look at the life of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles, and how does that inform how we engage the world? And that's really what this is about. In fact, 
the setting in which this is taking place is a polarizing time. You know, uh, Rome occupied the region of Palestine where the Jews lived right uh, right here. They had set up a pup, uh, they had established a puppet king to rule over uh, the the the, uh, the the region over the Jewish people, and and there was a lot of tension. There were revolts and rebellions before and after the life of Jesus, and even within. The, the pages of scripture within the broader culture, we see various uh, sects begin to form and not begin. They had formed, but we see them at play. And, and these people fiercely disagreed, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Essenes and Zealots, and, and how to interact with the broader society, how to interact with the Roman Empire. And they disagree fiercely uh, on on those on those matters. And so this is a time of polarization. This is a time of unrest. And amidst all of them, this is a culture which has extreme power distance. That means that the people up here don't associate with the people down here. And be, your behavior, your wealth, your status, your uh, perceived moral excellence determines whether you are up here or whether you're down here. And there's a current called honor and shame within those cultures that determine who ends up standing uh, on the social pipe or on the social hierarchy. So Jesus is navigating all of that. And he begins to, to sit at a table, it says, and tell stories to people. And we'll talk about those people in just a moment. But there's something that just hits different about a story, right? There's something that slaps different about a story than a college lecture, you know, and we can, we can retain a, a, something from a lecture. We can retain something from, you know, a, a discussion, but there's something about a story that just, it, it, we enter into it into a unique way. You know, we usually within the story find a character that we identify with. At least I do. But there's a solid chance that you do too because there's a reason why all those internet quizzes of, you know, which friend's character or office character are you, which Marvel superpower would you have? And those are so compelling and they get clicks like gangbusters because we all have watched those sorts of things and identify with particular uh, particular moments in the storyline, in particular characters in fact if you watch the the friends reunion the i think it's the 20th reunion or whatever that came out this this summer they spend a whole segment interviewing people who are talking about what character and friends they most identified with and so there's something about a good story that just plunges us into the thick of it and in turn it opens us up to be able to be changed by that story in no other way or no other form of communication can possibly do, which is why Jesus often told stories with lessons in it or what, what are called parables. Now, it wasn't uncommon in this time for teachers and rabbis to philosophers to give addresses at lectures or banquets. In fact, they were they had a name for it. It was called a symposia. And and so they, these were formally arranged. People would gather and the righteous and the rich would would come to break bread with these communicators and to share a meal and to hear what they had to say. But meal sharing in the ancient world is much different than it is today in the West. In modern America, we'll, we'll eat a meal with just about anybody. We'll go out to eat with our enemy. You know, <laughs> sometimes, you know, you go out to eat with somebody as long as they're paying. You know, you go out to eat for, uh, with just about, uh, you know, for any reason. There's no social ramification uh, that's that's that that really is is like what we talk about in the ancient world. 
We'll go out to people to maintain an acquaintanceship or a business lunch or more. We'll sit with complete strangers and maybe get their name or whatever. But if we're in a group, that might be all we walk away with is just knowing the name of the stranger. Uh, sometimes we'll go out to eat just purely out of the sense of social obligation with someone. But in the ancient world, hospitality was everything. You were honored or dishonored by the people with whom you chose to break bread. It looks much more like the high like social classes in the high school years that I grew up in where you had your jocks, your, you know, your geeks, your, you know, all of, all of these different people sitting at tables and to associate with those was to receive honor or dishonor. To be invited to the table of the cool people was to receive an honor and a social uh, uh, a social currency that being exiled at a table by yourself because no one wanted to sit with you wouldn't afford. Much more like that is the kind of story, the kind of setting that we find today. To sit with someone and to share a meal implied to the broader community who is always up in your business anyway because there was no expectation of privacy in, in, in this time and in this place. That you accepted those people, that you identified with them. You affirmed those with whom you shared a meal. Because of this, though, uh, people like tax collectors, people like prostitutes, people like uh, sinful people in society were often barred from these kind of teaching moments. So, and the, re, the, the tax collectors often sit kind of weird with us, like, you know, bar an IRS agent from, you know, but that's not the kind of tax collector we're talking about. Tax collectors in the ancient world, in the Roman world, were, were uh, thought to be dishonest. They were kind of the scum of the earth because they were Roman sympathizers. They would charge a little bit extra and skim off the top for their own personal gain. And so the righteous and the rich wouldn't associate with these people. But yet Luke opens up this section of scripture by saying that tax collectors and other, the New Living Translation says, other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. The symposias that Jesus held were much different for the tax collector, for the notorious sinner. And it wasn't a one-time occurrence. It wasn't just, uh, you know, uh, 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 oh, well, they were here, you know, and no one else came. So, you know, we'll just, no, it, it says he often sat with them. He sat at their table and would teach and would tell stories, would break bread, despite their poor social standing. Now, if the New Living Translation, if that adjective bears out, these aren't your run-of-the-mill sinners. These are notorious sinners who came often. Now, we're not talking about your kind of you know repentant church folk. Well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. In fact, there's nothing in the text that says that these people were repentant. And oddly enough, and this part even makes me feel uncomfortable, Jesus didn't seem to feel the need to draw a fine line between loving them but making sure he knew how much he hated their sin. You know, to, that he didn't draw that line. It doesn't even seem apparent that his intention was to convert them. Instead, he just broke bread and told stories. Now, that's that's really difficult for us to understand. It's difficult for the Pharisees who were there, the passersby who were there, because they would have undoubtedly looked upon this great teacher with a dose of judgment. Like, what is this guy thinking? He's this up and coming star in, Ga you know, coming from Galilee. He's on the lecture circuit. He, he can, he can have it all. He can be the next, the, you know, the next big thing. But why is he sitting at this table with these knuckleheads, these notorious sinners? And it's gonna, it's gonna ruin his social standing. And it says that the Pharisees that were there and saw this actually began to grumble. 
And to and in fact, one one commentator says it calls the grumbling calls to mind the grumbling of the unbelieving and disgruntled will, uh, uh, Israelites in the wilderness. Isn't it interesting that the Israelites in the wilderness grumbling at the manna that had come down from heaven mirror the Pharisees grumbling that the bread of life had come down from heaven, but it sat at a table that they, they didn't want to associate with. This, I believe that it's, it, we can, we can picture, if we can picture ourselves, place ourselves in the story, we see the Pharisee standing at arm's length, like a group of, you know, uh, snobby high school kids trying to compel some, someone sitting with the nerds, like the, the new kid that, you know, that classic movie, like Mean Girls, you know, trying to compel them not to associate with those people, but come over and join us. You know, there, I'm sure there was probably a personal that a personal uh, desire to that Jesus would come and sit with them because they would uh, they would receive honor from this great teacher coming and sitting with them. They would receive honor. They would be built up their prestige even among the Pharisees. They would be the Pharisees Pharisee. And here's the thing. We often in, you know, Sunday school and, you know, old time church would, would paint the Pharisees like these Marvel supervillains, but that's not the case. These, these are religiously devoted people. These are people who genuinely desire to please Yahweh. These are God fearing Jews who believe in being set apart, who believe in being God's chosen people, who believe in all of the right things, but they are, they're flabbergasted. That this man, this great teacher, whose reputation precedes him, is choosing, instead of sitting with the religious and, and the holy, those who actually care about living a life that's upright in, in the eyes of God, instead he sits with these people. Why is that? Now, it... it, it it, it kind of then we begin to see this kind of other dynamic form. Those are the others. Those are the people that we don't associate with. It naturally would follow since Jesus is this sinless man, that God man become flesh and dwelling among us, that he would want to associate with those like him. He would want to associate with the holy. He would want to associate with the righteous. He would want to associate those who could actually expand his influence, who could exp make his ministry bigger and, and grow and do all of this sort of thing. But instead, he, seats, he sits with tax collectors and notorious sinners often and breaks bread. And it's, it, 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 these are people, these others are people who think different. They look different. They act different. They live different. The others are not like these Pharisees. And it's in this setting that uh, Jesus begins to tell his own set of stories. Luke 15 goes on to tell this, uh, that uh, Jesus turns around and he's still seated at the table with the others. The Pharisees standing at a distance. And Jesus begins to, uh, to carefully craft a, a series of three like stories. And these are lesson-oriented stories like parables. But let's pause for a second and, and really begin to think, who are we identifying with in this story? We like to, we want to identify with Jesus. And, and maybe you're, you're in a place in life where you identify with the others at the story. You feel socially ostracized. You, you feel socially outcast. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But, we like to identify with Jesus. We would be the ones to tell those religious folk to, you know, to scurry away and blah, 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 blah. But if we're honest, let's pause for a moment and identify with the Pharisees. Let's, let's perch ourselves on their shoulders. Jesus is about to defend the others and scold the righteous and this drop the mic moment that will echo for 2000 years until it reaches our ears this morning. 
We would love to be that hero, but maybe we could just see ourselves standing at arm's length like the Pharisees. Maybe the group of tax collectors and sinners are the ones we can most easily identify with, but let's get to that in just a moment. Before we proceed, I wanna pause. Let's think about the Pharisees. Let's see the event through their eyes. Let's let's see this group of people who earnestly desire to see God's righteousness and justice reign on the earth. But here they are looking at Jesus, standing close enough to accuse, but not close enough to be misconstrued as accepting. And isn't that a word for us today? How often do we look at people in our society that look like us, that think like, or that, or that don't look like us, that don't think like us, that don't believe like us, don't have the same politics as us? We'll stand close enough to accuse, but we won't stand close enough to be, dare we be misconstrued as accepting, as affirming, as believing the same thing. Dare, uh, heaven forbid that someone mis, or mis, uh, assume or assume wrongly that we are like them. No, they're other, but we, we can be close enough so that they can hear our message of coming judgment. The thing is, we do like to bring judgment against one another, don't we? We Judges don't stand within, naturally. Even in our society, judges stand apart. And, and throughout history, judges always stand from a place of apartness to represent they come with the rule. They come with the standard that the other person has violated. Luke is implicitly asking us in this moment with the Pharisees standing over here and Jesus and the others standing there, which space would you likely be in? Which space would I likely be in? At the table with the others or with the Pharisees ready to sit down at a different table? In the place of vulnerability like Jesus or in the place of judgment? In the place of ministry or in the place of accusation? And it's within this setting that Jesus begins his three stories. You see, he offers three sorts of short lost parables. The first two are very short, focusing, one focuses on a man who loses a sheep, one focuses on a woman who, who loses a coin. And both kind of follow the same kind of, um, uh, what would you call it? A, a rising action, climactic point, falling action. Person searches, person finds, person rejoices. And if the Pharisees are anything like us in hearing this, they're identifying with the hero. They're identifying with the person who has found that coin, who's found that uh, uh, that sheep, and and they're think they're thinking of themselves in that place in the story. They're the heroic shepherd keeping the flock of Yahweh from wandering off. They're that woman who rejoices because a sinner has repented. Unlike that lot that's sitting at the table with Jesus. In fact, maybe Jesus is actually subtly throwing shade on those sinners. Whatever the case. They will likely expect a similar swift resolution in real life to the kind of story that Jesus is telling. Maybe he'll, he'll turn and he'll say, you know, hey, sinner, you need, you need to come home. But in the parable of the prodigal son, the third story of the three, we see a different kind of story begin to unfold. And it's one of my favorites. Like the first two, we see, we think that the parable is in relation to the two principal characters, the wayward younger brother and the father. Just like the man with the lost sheep, the woman with the lost coin, and their respective lost object. But Jesus sets the story by saying a man had two sons. While the older son would have been the person of honor, Jesus all but ignores treatment of him until the very end. He begins with the younger son who asks his father for a share of his estate. Now that 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 takes guts even in our culture. 
But in our like in our time, asking for your your inheritance before your parents were dead is just that's, that's bad form. You know, you probably get yelled like I like I for sure would not be happy if my oldest daughter was like, "Hey, Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but if I could cash out on your life insurance policy, that'd be great." But in this culture, in the ancient times, it would have been unthinkable. In the eyes of the Pharisees, that would have been the worst kind of son you could possibly imagine. It was so disgraceful and dishonorable, that son would have been one of those notorious sinners. To ask for his share of his father's estate would have been tantamount to to wishing his father dead. And unlike a life insurance policy that pays out a specific amount upon the person's passing, in the ancient world, that amount may change over time. So it's very possible he could have run away with the inheritance, the family had gone broke, and the elder son would have been left with nothing. To cash out like this would have been unthinkable. And the whole village, all of the acquaintances, all of the friends, the extended family would have been completely aware of it and would have shunned that younger son. As the story goes, the son cashes out and he takes off. He lives the the lap of luxury. I imagine him posting killer photos from all over the world on Instagram. He squanders his money, though, and he ends up sleeping in pig pens and is literally starving. The notorious son is starving. It's important to note that it's not in the story. Look it up. It's not in the story that it's a repentant heart that puts the younger son on his journey home. It's hunger. Like the, like the notorious sinners sitting at the, at the table with Jesus as he tells this story, there's no mention of repentance. It's a matter of desperation. It's not a matter. Jesus doesn't sit with them because they're willing to repent. He sits with them because they're hungry and he's the bread of life. The son, the son returns home to find his father running out to greet him. Now what's happening behind the scenes is it, the, the, the townspeople would have likely had to, he would have had, the son would have had to pass through the village in order to get to his father. And it was undignified for an, uh, an elderly patriarch in a family to run. It was completely undignified. But what would happen because this man had shame, because this man had brought dishonor on his house, the village would have welcomed him with quite the welcome wagon, hurling insults at him and shaming him publicly to let him know he may be here physically, but he is not welcome back in society. And so what happens? The father runs out. He circumvents all of that process and he throws his arms around his son to effectively clothe him in his own honor. Before any shame could be handed out by the people of the village, before any any dishonor could be heaped upon his son, his father runs out and he wraps his arms around his unrepentant but desperate son and welcomes him, him home. It says that the, the honor of the father then becomes the honor of the notorious son because the father kills the fattened calf. He invites the son to a banquet table so they can break bread together and they can celebrate together sitting at the table. His hungry son finding the bread that he so desperately needed. Jesus is subtly drawing a distinction between himself sitting at the table with these notorious sinners and the father sitting at the table with his notorious son. Just as the honor of the father was transposed to the son, so too Jesus's righteousness would be transposed to this lot of others. You see, we see often in, 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 in we think of, uh, of sin and righteousness like the Old Testament, that if you touch something that's unclean, you become unclean. But the Bible says that in the New Testament, that through Jesus, that light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. 
Now, the story would have been great had it ended with verse 24. So the party began. Awesome. It's just like the other stories. It would have rounded off in a similar fashion with a party, with a celebration. Roll the credits, close the curtain, turn on the lights. Let's hit Starbucks on the way home, right? Ending with a party always feels great. And anyone that can hear that story, see, see the merits of redemption, feel pretty good about it. It's a good feel-good kind of message. Jesus appears to be ending the story by fully resolving the conflict. But the repentance of the or the repentance or reconciliation of the brother was not the central point of the conflict. It was not the reason Jesus was telling the story. The conflict is not between the father and the notorious son. The conflict is between the father and his elder son, who has been barely mentioned in this entire story. But like a Marvel movie where there's, you know, when you, you get to, if you watch like a Marvel movie, it rolls the credits and then there's like that sneak scene that sneaks up on you as you're getting up out of your, you know, your uh, seat in the theater and gathering all your belongings. There's a scene that pops up and it, it gives you this cliffhanger that leaves the audience thinking. Jesus does the same thing in this story by continuing in verse 25. He says, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. He was doing the, the thing a good son would do. He was doing holy work. He was, he was tending to the fields of his father in the same way that the Pharisees tended to the fields of, uh, of Yahweh and his sheep. When he returned home, he heard it says the, the elder son heard music and dancing in the house. So the party is raging and he was not the principal character. The righteous son was not the principal character of the party. He was not the reason for the party. And the older brother becomes enraged. And when his father comes out to compel him to come home, he responds with self-righteousness, self-pity and jealousy. And Henry Nouwen actually remarks that beneath these symptoms within the elder brother lies a heart that feels it was never received really what it was due. There's joy and excitement in the party, but that joy and excitement produced resentment and anger because the reconciliation of one brother leads to the withdrawal of the other brother. The younger brother's return would have been impact, it would have impacted the inheritance of the elder brother. He would be poorer than he was before, all because of the notorious brother's life choices. The younger brother should be responsible for his own actions, yet the father welcomes him and honors him as though he'd done nothing wrong. He, uh, he doesn't outline his sins, but instead he breaks bread and pours wine. And the father's words conclude the story that Jesus is telling. It says, the father looked at him and said, look, dear son, you've always stayed with me and everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day because your brother was once dead, but has come back to life. He was lost and not found. And I'm going to read the words of Henry Nouwen as, as he's reflecting on this moment. And he's reflecting specifically on the elder brother. After all, he did all the right things. He was obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, and hardworking. People respected him, admired him, praised him, and likely considered him a model son. Outwardly, the elder brother was faultless. But when confronted with the father's joy at the return of his younger brother, a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly, there becomes glaringly visible a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish kind of person, one that has remained deeply hidden even though it's been growing stronger and more powerful over the years. There's so much resentment among the just and the righteous. There's so much judgment, condemnation, prejudice among the saints. 
There's so much frozen anger among the people who are concerned about avoiding sin. And it's there that the curtain closes, the lights come up. The reality is Jesus doesn't say whether the elder brother uh, listens to his father's plea to come to the table with the notorious son. He leaves that decision in the hands of the Pharisees who are sitting at arm's length or standing at arm's length to the table that Jesus is sitting at with the notorious sinners. And Luke doesn't tell us whether the Pharisees came and sat with the notorious sinners. He leaves that decision in our hands. So I ask you again, who do you allow to sit at your table? At whose table are you willing to be seated? It's an important question as we can reread that story a hundred times. But when we've been serving Jesus for any length of time, I, I can, I'll be honest with you, I can identify with the elder brother. I can identify in periods of time where I've, I never had a prodigal son kind of moment in my own testimony. My own testimony is that I was in, I was a fourth generation member of my family, the youngest member of my church in, in Mount Morris, Michigan. I grew up, I preached my first sermon at the age of 14, went to Bible college, went right into to ministry. I did all the things that I was supposed to do to be that righteous elder son. But then when there's more pomp and circumstance for someone who's lived a life of complete craziness, but has come home, there's a part of me that can be, have the tendency to feel like, ah, oh, I wish I had that, that killer testimony. You know, I, my testimony is boring. You know, I've just been tending the fields and here this person's getting a party. We can often do that with people who we feel like don't deserve the grace of God, that don't deserve, maybe they've done this or that. Maybe they think very differently than we do about something. Maybe they hold very differently to a set of current events. But And, and the reality is whenever we get up from a table because we don't like the way that someone else lives out their walk with Jesus, Jesus stays seated at the table with those people. Whenever we remove ourselves from the situation, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't follow us. We follow him. And so we have to, we have to consider that it breaks the father's heart when we cannot come to the table with others who, like the younger son, may worship differently, may have a different lived experience, may have stuff in their past or even their present, may post something on, on Twitter or Facebook that we don't like. They may view the world differently. And because of this, we stand in a place outside in a place of judgment. We refuse to go into that table and affirm that their life matters, that their lived experience matters. And like the Pharisees, to say that their story matters, to say that their experience matters, to say that they matter, is tantamount to or can be misconstrued as affirming this perspective or believing this you know, ideology or this or that, all of which is ultimately irrelevant in the light of the fact that the father has created those people. He's created the others. He's created the notorious sinner and the tax collector. And he, he desires to sit at their table and he's holding or pulling out a chair, asking for you to come and to sit with them as well. And that's uncomfortable. When we associate with people who don't have the most clean lives, they don't have the, 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 the greatest track record. You know what we do? We find ourselves being condemned by other religious folk, by other elder brothers. But that's exactly where we need to be, is right where Jesus is, seated at those tables with those kind of people, eating, breaking bread, and sharing stories.
I want to submit to you that really there are three kind of applications that we can draw from this. The first we just talked about with the Pharisee. Are we the Pharisee? That we need to, to make a conscious choice that in a world which is polarized, which in a world that casts judgment based on who we sit with, that we recognize that we are a missionary people sent to this earth, sent to our workplaces, sent to our our neighborhoods. And regardless of what a person does or who a person is or what they think or what they believe, what they post on the internet, they are made in the image of God and God wants to sit at their table and he beckons us to do the same. He beckons us to be the most radically welcoming kind of people that are willing to sit and to eat and to break bread and to get and to demonstrate genuine love seated at that table, even to such an extent that we can get a bad rap for it. Are we the notorious sinner? Maybe there's a part of you in your life where you feel you you identify with the people in that story that are cast out, that are cast aside, that don't that you don't feel like you have a place to belong. And let me tell you, Jesus is sitting at your table. Jesus wants to break bread with you. Jesus wants to share stories with you. And so are many in the body of Christ. Many people who desire for for every person standing in the seat of judgment, there are a thousand people that want to sit down and want to hear your story. They want to walk with you through pain. And so where the enemy would like to, to make you believe that you're alone, you are most definitely not. Jesus is with you. I'm with you. This local church is with you. And I truly believe that if we become those kind of people that sit down with people, regardless of where they are in their walk with Christ and have no other agenda in mind than to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to share stories, to break bread, to show love, that the Holy Spirit can actually do what he desires to do, which is to transform lives and bring people together in his kingdom. Lastly, are we Jesus? Are, can we get to a place like so many other lessons from scripture where we model the, the character, the, the, uh, the attitude, the posture of Jesus who desires to actively look for the tables that people don't want to sit at, for the people that people, uh, that other people don't want to associate with? Are we like Jesus that we are willing to sacrifice the world's definition of success over our lives? Are we willing to sacrifice our standing in society? Are we willing to sacrifice what the religious people might think about us so that we can do everything short of sin to see people come to know Jesus, to see people come to know the, the same love, the same transformation, the same power, the same warm embrace that we have felt from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus himself. I want to posture that to you. I want to propose that to you uh, as we close out to think, to ponder on this, this message, to ponder on this story and to ask yourself, what part am I playing now? And what part of the story do I want to play in the future? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for uh, the, the, the folks that are, are listening and watching uh, online. God, I pray that you would just Speak to our hearts, Lord God. I pray that you would transform us, mold us, make us more like you. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the tables that we need to sit at. 
even when it's uncomfortable, even when it defies logic, even when it, it, be, it, it might cost us something or it might uh, uh, incur ridicule from uh, from other people in, in, in society. Lord, I pray that we would be where our world is being polarized, God, that we would be bridge builders that bring people together under your name, in your power. And we pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Fathom Church. It has been wonderful to be with you, and hopefully I'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening in today. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus, we want to celebrate with you. To connect with us about what your next step with Jesus might be, or even if you need help figuring that out, you can text the keyword FATHOM to 97000 anytime and follow the prompts. You can also go ahead and type in the search bar of your podcast app, Fathom Beyond Sunday, and there you'll find our new podcast. You'll be able to listen in on some really great conversations, just taking the truth of God's word from our Sunday sermon a step further, talking about how we can apply these truths to our everyday lives between Monday and Saturday, not just on Sunday. We love you, we're praying for you, and we hope you'll tune in again soon.